This program was recorded October 27, 2010. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Yes, welcome to a special Halloween edition of Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bloodholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenblood. And we've got a frightening, I mean fascinating show for you today. Yes, we do, Michael. In the spirit of Halloween, we've got a creepy, spooky show in store You're creepy. for all... I am creepy, and you're spooky. And it's a show in store for all of you today. Coming up, our guest is Anna Doty, curator of the Muter Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. The Muter Museum is a 150-year-old home to 20,000 unforgettable objects and oddities from the history of medicine, including 139 skulls in a row, the famous soap lady, the largest colon in the world, and the tallest skeleton in North America. And later in the show, if there's a topic in healthcare that's kept lots of us awake in the dark at night, it's the healthcare reform bill. No matter which side you're on, as we all know, the midterm elections could lead to the repeal of healthcare reform legislation. ReachMD recently asked healthcare professionals at the PrimeMed Midwest Conference in Chicago what they thought of the recently enacted healthcare reform legislation. Do they support it, want to change it, or repeal it? We'll find out what they said later in the show, and we want to find out what you think. That is right. We invite you to call in and tell us what you think about healthcare reform legislation. Or Halloween. Or Halloween, but also healthcare reform legislation. Call us at 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. You can also email us at sol at reachmd.com or tweet us at handle reachmd. But first, let's look at some of the spooky headlines from the world of medicine. The University of Maryland recently reported lungs that can taste. This is a finding that I have to say sounds creepy as all get out, but may lead to future therapies that are actually anything but scary, Matt. Unless the lungs can taste your fear, Michael. Mm. (laughs) Yes, somebody's laughing at that. Thank you. Anyway, researchers at Maryland have found that lungs actually have taste receptors, not unlike those in our tongues. But the taste receptors here are different in that they aren't found in clusters like taste buds, And rather than being hardwired directly to the brain, these ones send signals only to smooth muscle. But here's something really interesting. They do respond to bitterness. Yes, and and we know know (laughs) when we put something bitter in our mouths, that taste is often repellent. It lets us know what we're eating may be poisonous. So these investigators expected to find bitterness to be repellent in the lungs as well. They looked for chest tightness, coughing, and wheezing. But what they found instead was that the lungs Relax. A relax. Yes, relax, my and dear. And we should probably clarify here that no, they did not force a test subject to aspirate a Guinness beer or anything like that. Yeah. And that would be extremely scary. But they just took some bitter compounds and aerosolized them. And just finding the receptors was a matter of grounding up lung tissue and extracting their RNA signatures. So think on that, Michael. Ground up tissue that can taste things. How about that for scary? All right. Very scary, but important too. Seriously, the thinking here is that this discovery could be used to make inhalable bitter compounds to help patients with asthma. Maybe no more steroids. But word to the wise, just eating bitter foods won't do the trick. It's been tried. (laughs) Ah, Bring your neck over here. Don't even want to investigate that. All right. Continuing our theme here. The L.A. Times reports that Halloween is the season for the most absurdly alarmist warnings from the world of healthcare. Boo! <laughs> this hails from a blog titled, Run for Your Lives, Halloween is Coming. 
and it's a list of various specialty organization warnings to the general public that brand Halloween as a hazard to your health. Absolutely, and here's a few choice warnings on the dental side. Parents are reminded to be aware of letting their children eat everything from potato chips to gummy bears. What's wrong with those? As these can all rot children's teeth. That's my problem. And adults are reminded how studies show that they are even less likely to brush their teeth before bedtime. You don't even have any teeth. Also from the nutritionist, I do. Remember, (laughs) show me your neck, I'll show you. Remember that when you give candy to kids on Halloween, you're putting them at risk for childhood obesity. That's why Children's Healthcare of Atlanta goes so far as to relabel the holiday Hello Wellness. Hello Wellness? Oh, that's weird. That's just classic. That's, that's weird. Hello Wellness. And don't forget, proper foot care. <laughs> Cold weather leads to foot fungus, as we all know, but it's the season to shed sandals for closed-toed shoes. So beware, all you listeners with feet. Halloween marks an increased risk of fungal infections. How about that for a trick-or-treat? I'm a dermatologist. I make part of my living on foot fungus. Pretty (laughs) absurd. But seriously, we've got our own Halloween cause that we think the public can gather around. It's called Candy Plus a Can. And no, it's not another warning to listeners. It's a call to action. We want you to enjoy this season, but remind you that one way to enjoy it is to actively make a difference. This is something I'm doing in my practice, and you can do it in your practice, too. As we talked about on our last show, Matt and I cover a lot of stories about obesity, but we don't get as often to talk about the public health problem of hunger. And we've got some statistics to share. That is right. A lot of us don't actually realize that there's an estimated 16 million children living with hunger in the United States. And if we flip that on the other side of the age spectrum, over a million households with seniors struggle with hunger. So taken overall, one in six Americans go hungry every day because of not being able to afford enough to eat. So while most of us are packing away a few extra calories and pounds this Halloween with candy runs, please take the opportunity to donate some canned goods to your local food pantry. I'm personally encouraging patients in my practice to do this, and it's working. I have like at least 100 patients who told me they're going to do this and spread it throughout the country. I even got a call from one of our listeners who's a member of a local medical student association who took the idea of adding to a food pantry's coffers during Halloween, took this to his national organization. So it's not hard, and it makes a huge difference at the community. So talk to everyone you know about it. Put it on Facebook, email everybody, spread this around. I'd like to see about a billion cans delivered to food pantries. And let's start focusing on a way to inspire rather than just scare our patients this Halloween. It is the simplest thing that we can do, isn't it? I mean, this is Halloween. We're all stocking up on every imaginable sugary food. Absolutely. Why not just donate a can of actually of something that's nutritionally valuable? And I've gotten such positive feedback from my patients. Listen, if I was going to create a practice promotion idea for a show on ReachMD, it would be this. My patients think that I'm awesome just because I put this idea out. <laughs> and it's, it's a do-it-yourself project. The positive I tell PR them. is what we're yeah, talking as well. Yeah, don't, I say, don't call me. Don't ask me how to do it. You do it yourself. Take a few cans. But everybody, please, let's feed the homeless this Halloween. Nicely put, Michael. And that is a great theme for us to carry into our interview for today. Our guest is Anna Doty. She's a curator of the Mütter Museum. Which she's is scary? Part of the, she's very scary. This is part of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. And talk about inspirational, which we were just talking about. This is the oldest professional medical organization in the country, founded in 1747. I was there when it was made. You were. The Mütter Museum houses 20,000 objects, from specimens to antique medical instruments to photographs. Some are frightening, but all are fascinating. And Miss Doty is kind enough to give us an impression of their exhibits as they prepare for a special 
flashlight tour of the museum this evening. Miss Doty, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Thank you. Hi, Anna. You have more skulls than are tattooed on all the Harley riders in the entire U.S. (laughs) (laughs) What are you guys doing for Halloween that's really special? And then we'll talk about the museum. Well, actually, we're having a Day of the Dead festival uh, Saturday, October 30th. I'll send Matt. (laughs) He acts like he's dead. I'm already part dead already, yeah. So instead of doing Halloween, what we decided to do was have a, a celebrate a cultural event uh, that occurs not just in Mexico, but all over Latin America and in the United States that uh, celebrates death and celebrates your ancestors. So we're having um, sugar skull decorating, we're having live music, some great food and the celebration. And afterwards, we're going to have... Um, Grover Socox, who's a, a well-known uh, performer, and he'll be doing uh, a rendition of Poe's, uh, the, the, I think it's The Raven? All of, he's going to be doing kind of like a mix of, of all of Poe's work. And then you're going to like sacrifice him so you have a real dead person, right? No comment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's a true exhibition without a sacrifice is what That's we right. always say. A real day of the dead. Is this the first time you've done this or is this, uh, this a completely... Third, our third annual Day of the Dead celebration, and we try and do a little bit more every year, but no sacrifices. <laughs> we are going to have an ofrenda, um, which is a type of altar to uh, to your ancestors, but um, there's no there's no actual sacrifice going on. There's just you know some food and some flowers and decorations. Well, could I put like Louis the Fourteenth on there as my ancestor or something? Well. Do you have proof that he's your ancestor? Then maybe I'll think about it. I do. So tell us more about the museum. A lot of our listeners don't really know what the museum is like. We've done a show in the past, but give us a quick little one-minute tour. Well, the museum is part of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, which you already talked about. And uh, the museum is younger than the actual college. It's about 150 years old. And uh, the, the museum itself opened in 1863. And uh, it's called the Mutra Museum because uh, the main benefactor was a man by the name of Thomas Dent Mutter. And he bequeathed to us uh, a substantial endowment, but also his, the entirety of his teaching collection, which was a variety of these wonderful wet specimens and skeletons and dried preparations, instruments, just a wonderful variety uh, that was his teaching collection. And what we did is we uh, have, over the years, expanded upon that. So we have uh, over 25,000 objects right now uh, in the museum, and we have about 20% of our entire collection is on display. So who was this person that would have that kind of collection on his own, independently, as a doctor? I mean, I just find that interesting. It's really interesting. Uh, he was he was a, uh, a professor at what is now Thomas Jefferson University. He was also a practicing doctor, um, and he was, of course, a fellow of the College of Physicians. And uh, many doctors who were also teachers um, did amass these uh, teaching collections because you needed these types of materials to accurately teach anatomy and to teach about pathologies as well. Remember, there were no PowerPoints, there's no computers or anything back then. They taught with the actual body parts. And so they needed a variety of different ways to preserve these body parts. And all the different types of specimens and objects that we have here have pros and cons uh, in terms of teaching. 
And that's why you need a variety of different types of objects in order to really teach the full spectrum of medicine. Okay, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on Reach MDXM 160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, along with Dr. Matt Bernholtz. We're talking with Anna Doty, curator of the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, part of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, home of 20,000 medical curiosities and anomalies. So I have a question. I realize you have a nine-foot-long human colon that I saw there. Eight feet, four inches. Well, who's counting counting it? What's six inches, you know? Contained over It contained over 40 pounds of fecal matter. I think that this is mislabeled. I believe it belonged to one of our Washington politicians. (laughs) It's so full. You had to go there. I had to go there. We're going to be talking about health care reform. I believe this. (laughs) I, I, I want credit for that discovery. Are you trying to get me in trouble? No, I, I get myself in trouble <laughs> I think we every did by show. Just, just by default. It's, that's right. You know, that's really the thing. Tell us your favorite coolest object. What's the coolest thing? That oh you my like goodness! That? That's that's only tough. twenty thousand to choose from. Yeah, only twenty. Well, twenty about twenty five actually. It, it keeps growing, you know, because we but who's are. Counting, that's right? something I'd like to mention is we are an active collecting institution. We're not. We didn't stop collecting 150 years ago. Um, in fact, I just accessioned uh, a couple weeks ago, I had a gallbladder mailed to me. And just about two weeks ago, I had a doctor come in and he brought me three enlarged prostates. I mean, one was over 500 grams. <laughs> and I, I think that begs the question, how do you even mail a gallbladder? FedEx. Yeah, actually, <laughs> the FedEx, you can mail biological objects. Uh, in FedEx, there's a special envelope, and there's certain uh, criteria you have to uh, go through, but it is um, legal. The, the hospital mailed it directly to me. A lot of the times, I'll pick it up. I'll, if, if it's the local object, I'll drive and, and pick it up, or, you know, like in this case, the do- uh, a doctor uh, drove the prostates to me. Naturally. Of course. <laughs> but another question that comes up then is, how does one find and acquire these artifacts and specimens? I mean, this clearly isn't an eBay acquisition. So. Oh, no, this is a long-standing tradition that, that started right from the beginning of physicians themselves uh, making these donations. And um, so they'll have uh, consent from the patient uh, to donate these specimens to us. And so we're very, very lucky that we're still continuing on in this tradition that we've been you know, doing for 150 years. Um, we also do have uh, the patients themselves making the, the choice to donate the objects uh, to us as well. So we have, do have primary donations and secondary donations. How do you get the object, like a gallbladder, away from the pathologist? I mean, if it's being taken out, it obviously has to go to be examined. The pathologist give it to you? You know, it's really tough, and uh, sometimes what you have to do is um, beg, plead, bribe the pathologist. Please don't slice and dice it too much. Um, Obviously, yes, the pathologist has to... um, you know, have first run of it, but there's ways to take samples, there's ways to do the analysis that's not going to decimate the specimen. Um, so if you make arrangements ahead of time and explain, you know, we really need this specimen, we really want this specimen in the collection, there are ways around it. Well, somewhere I remember a jar of my mother's gallstones from when I was a kid. If I look through my basement and find them, do you want them? Bring it on. Okay. <laughs> the challenge is set. <laughs> <laughs> but that also happens too. I mean, we also have... Um, uh, you know, a, a family that contacts us and their father or grandfather had been a physician and maybe they passed away and they have a skull, in, uh, literally a skull in their closet or skeleton in their closet and they no longer Matt has lots of those. Yeah, <laughs> So many skeletons in my closet, I can't even tell you. Yeah, I can't deal with the metaphorical skeletons, but I will deal with the actual skeletons. Um, and they just, they no longer feel it's appropriate for them to have them and they'd rather the, the skeleton go to us. I mean, that's happened quite a few times since I... 
uh, started working here. Um, so we have something like that. And like I said, the primary donations where we'll have somebody who, who is having a hip transplant or they had a kidney stone and they want to donate that actual object to us. And what I really, really like about that is that now I have contact with that individual. I can ask them questions. I can get the, what we call the provenance or the, the medical information about that specimen. And that provides such an interesting narrative and, and a storyline that what the patrons of our museum really like to hear about. Well, actually, I want to know something from you. Okay. Because I was there, and I saw... Yeah, we the, had a lovely tour. Mm -hmm, the Siamese twins, Chang and Ang. Mm -hmm. And I would like you to expose on our show, for the first time ever, like some secret about them. We want to be the first. Like, tell us something that nobody knows about Chang and Ang, like about Ooh. their personal life. Well, that's a Everybody's good fascinated by them. How did they... Li they lived together. They had children. They had 21 children. children. I think that's right. a... Something that a lot of people don't know. Boggles the mind. But who's counting again, right? <laughs> yeah. 21.6. Yes. Um, that's a, you know, there, a, there's a lot that's been written about Chang and I. There's actually a novel even uh, written about them. So I'm not sure if I could tell you anything about them that somebody somewhere doesn't already know. But some of the lesser known um, things, you know, information about Chang and I, what is really, I find really interesting about them is, yes, they were uh, clearly identical twins, but that doesn't mean you have the same personality. So Chang and I were very different individuals, very different personalities. They got into fights, um, and they actually had to have a system where they would uh, spend a couple days at one brother's farm, because they did buy adjoining farms in Mount Airy, North Carolina, and they would spend the other day at the other brother's farm, and then who, whosoever farm they were at, that's who was boss. And that's, you know, kind of who, who got to be in charge for those days because, you know, Chang, Chang liked his alcoholic beverages. Let's just leave it at that. And Ang, Ang liked to stay up late at night and play poker sometimes. And so clearly, you know, different people, different hobbies. Um, and so they found that, that arrangement to be, you know, to, to work for them. So I found that very interesting that they were able to kind of come to some sort of solution. Well, drinking and playing poker do go together, don't they? I know, but one liked to do one and one liked to do the other. They, they both didn't Ooh. like to do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. Very interesting. I can tell you that they're, you know, the ancestors of Chang and Ang, of course, if you think 21 children, there are quite a lot of ancestors. And uh, they're still in touch with us today. And uh, they have these massive family reunions still in North Carolina. Um, are they bunkers, all of them bunkers? Yeah, well, they're derived from the bunkers. I mean, the 21 children, some of the, you know, of the of the girls that Chang and Ang had might not have the bunker name, but yeah, they're, they're all descended from the bunker line. I don't want to change the, the topic too much because I love that, but I have to ask you about the body of the famous soap lady. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, I have to ask about some details there because I think our listeners will find that fascinating. Sure. So fire away. Tell us about the soap lady. Well, the so let's, let's talk about first why she's called the soap lady. And the first thing I always want to say is she's not made of soap. Uh, the reason she's called the soap lady is she represents something called adipocere formation. And adipocere is a waxy, pallowy, kind of soapy-like substance. Um, and that's why she's called the soap lady. But you can't wash your hands with her. You know, that's, that's you know, kind of a lot of myths that need to be debunked. So um, what happened was uh, when she was interred in the ground after she died, uh, her body underwent this chemical transformation where the body fat on her chemically changed to this adipocere. And that's important because adipocere does two things. It forms a protective uh, kind of coating around the body. But the second, and I think kind of the most important thing is, 
well, without getting too graphic, let's just say insects don't like the way adipocere tastes. <laughs> so if they don't like the way you taste, they're not going to aid in that natural decomposition process. And that's why she's so relatively well-preserved. So that's kind of the basics of, of the soap lady. Um, and to get a little bit more in-depth in the story is that there's a, we're doing a massive project right now on really trying to determine some of the basic information about the soap lady because everything we thought we knew about her, we've been able to prove wrong as a result of scientific testing. So uh, now what we're having to do is literally start from scratch. And, and we're doing what I like to call archaeoforensics. We're using modern-day 21st century forensic um, t- tools to try and figure out this you know, 19th century mystery of the soap lady. Well, you know, they're doing MRIs on Egyptian mummies these days. I don't see why the soap lady should be exempt. She actually did have an MRI. Um, but the problem with her is she's very, very delicate. We can't move her off-site to, to get an MRI. We had to bring, this was in 2001, I believe, before I got here, um, they brought a, you know, and I use it, a portable <laughs> MRI machine um, up into the college, and they did a, they did a scan there. Um, it was very labor-intensive, and, and, you know, a portable MRI is kind of a misnomer. It was very, very heavy, and it was, it was, a, it was a hard thing to do. Does so. she have health insurance to cover the cost of that? <laughs> no, the deductible is just... Ridiculous. <laughs> they don't want to take her out because if it rains, she starts to bubble and soap. Oh, and sure. I saw no, her. She she's really, very delicate. She's really pretty. Really? No. <laughs> no. I was going to say she's she's um we put her in a new uh, a really nice new case and we have her fiber optically lit and the kind of the running joke is the good news is you can see her better and the bad news is you can, can see, see her better. better. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably one of the creepiest things to see on Halloween. That and all the skulls. Well, I think, it, yeah, oh, the hurdle skull. Do you, wait, do you course, give out yeah. candy for trick-or-treaters? Um, you know, I think we did many years ago. I don't think we're going to be doing that this year, but we're going to have treats and cookies at our Day of the Dead Festival, so there you go. Um, and Mexican hot chocolate, which... Give out body parts. Well, you know, I, I guess, you know, this is a good time as I need to give the plug that we do have Soap Lady on a Rope for Sarah in our museum store. Uh, you have, right. a, have a great store. And you can have... get that on what we have. Our museum store is online. Gummy bitter lung receptors, too, they have. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. That comes so next other. year. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's called moonermuseumstore.com. Everybody's going to go there now, and they can get their trick-or-treats. Our guest today has been <laughs> Anna Doughty, director of the Moody Museum in Philadelphia. Thank you for joining us today oh, on Second welcome. Opinion Live here on ReachMD, the house of blood. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Say hi me. to the soap that, lady yeah. for me. I will do that. I'm in love with her. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and with that, thank you, Miss Doughty. There's nothing I can add to that, Michael. Thanks so much. A time to move on to a recent ReachMD poll whose results we want to share with you. Earlier this month, ReachMD sent producers to the PrimeMed Midwest Conference in Chicago to ask healthcare professionals for their opinion on the recently enacted medical reform legislation. The poll question they asked was, do you support it? Do you want to change it? or repeal it entirely. And a majority of physicians and other medical professionals who responded to the poll, which was slightly more than 66%, are in favor of the health reform legislation. 214 medical professionals participated in our poll, and here's how it broke down. 38.8% indicated they supported the legislation. 28.5% supported the legislation with changes. Slightly over 20% would repeal health care reform entirely, and 12.6% had no opinion. 
So in talking to people on site, our producers were able to get a sense of why they either supported or wanted to repeal the legislation, as well as how they would change it. Now, some respondents talked to us on tape, and we'll share their thoughts today, starting with those in favor. A lot of people were happy that the legislation would make it possible for more people to get health insurance and, by extension, expand coverage. This centered on the right to health care point of view. And here's a one physician who felt that way. Stephen Brunton. I'm a family physician in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I think the new health care reform legislation should not be repealed because it's really a, a right, I believe, to get health care. Particularly as physicians, we've made the choice to serve and to be able to look after people without consideration of their financial situation just seems to make sense. Right, but others said health care reform legislation didn't go far enough to make sure people obtain health insurance they can afford. Some of these respondents comprise the nearly 30% who supported legislation with changes. Barry Abrams, state of Illinois, pediatrician and urgent care physician. For me, to have anything less than full-fledged health coverage is inadequate. I had a woman who had flat-out heart attack in my office. EKG changes the whole bit. She didn't look very good. She refused an ambulance. Why? Because she didn't want to have to pay $100 copay. She couldn't afford it. I think that the health care reform legislation should not only be non-repealed, if such a word exists, but it should also be expanded. Now, one interesting analogy that we came across more than once, and on both sides of the debate, was auto insurance, of all things. Some people in favor of health reform looked at our current requirement to carry auto insurance as a simple precedent for how to approach health insurance. But a few others used this particular analogy to make the exact opposite argument. Here's Dr. Stephen Justice from Sydney, Ohio. A lot of people argue that auto insurance is similar, but it's not similar at all. You have no obligation to own a car or to drive it. If you have no car or do not drive a car, then you're not forced to buy auto insurance. But if you survive, then you're forced by the federal government to buy health insurance. Now, many others who are not in favor of the legislation have concerns about professional issues like Medicare reimbursement and tort reform. One doctor told us he simply can't make a living from the Medicare payments outlined under health care reform, especially not with the kind of debt he carries from medical school. Let's hear from Dr. David Gregory from Decatur, Illinois. Only those people who are already out of debt will be able to continue to practice if they want to. But there's going to be a lot of people entering into the medical field who are going to look and say, well, gee, my average medical school debt is $200,000. If I go into family practice, I'm going to make 60 or 70. I completely and totally support defund, repeal, and replace. Interesting stuff. I mean, there's so many different perspectives here. I never realized how polarized we are as physicians because in the doctor's lunchroom, I hear all the griping. I never hear people really supporting it, and I'm really astonished at those statistics. I think one thing we can all probably agree on, here we go again, if we threw out all the politicians, then maybe we could get some intelligent reform here. Because there's, there's obviously problems in this You'll just bill. get other politicians in a different suit. But from my point of view, everybody is griping. But I find it interesting how everyone's griping on both sides of it. You get polarizing debates here. But no matter what, everybody's griping about something regarding health care reform. Right. It's just interesting to me. Whether we put that analogy of auto insurance, I thought that was particularly interesting. Looking at this particular speaker who says, you know, if you survive, you're forced to pay for health insurance. They take other people who say, no, we already have to pay for auto insurance anyway. This is no different. You know, health insurance should be a right. Let's just go forward. So it's like almost like um, 
you're right either way. <laughs> I understand that. And the only one of the real problems I have, Matt, is that the administration has been calling this health care reform bill. We're not reforming health care by this bill. We're adding people to the insurance rolls, and that's it. I would honestly like to see real health care reform, which has been alluded to here. Real health care reform would be taking a look at the way that we do things and waste money and not wasting them, getting rid of necessary lawsuits and keeping their legitimate lawsuits. I don't think there's a doctor in the country that doesn't believe there is real malpractice. But until we start to look at health care itself, we're missing the boat. This is all about money and putting people on insurance rolls. So we're going to have the same health care system and do the same silly stuff we do and waste the money we're doing with more people. But isn't, as you talk about health reform, as you're referring to it, you're talking about health tort reform, you're talking about Medicare reimbursement. I mean, those are definitely big elements of health care reform, but that does come down to money as well, does it not? I mean, how do we make the argument that ultimately most of these issues do come down to money? Well, I think ultimately everything comes down to money, but I think that there needs to be some legislation along the way that are just some conversations started about how we really make health care better. For instance, putting people on the insurance rolls isn't going to get people to eat healthier, to be less obese, to exercise, to work out to stop smoking, to stop excess drinking. We have all of these problems, and we really don't have ways of handling them very well. Let's start to reform our health at the same time. Yeah. I really do want to put people into physicians' offices to take care of things, but not under the old system that you wait till you get sick, and then we make a lot of money from it. Let's keep people healthy. Well, clearly, we've seen, we've heard, and we've given some interesting opinions on this show. And now we want to find out what the rest of you and our listening audience think about healthcare reform. So we're continuing this poll online. Make your voice heard. Go to reachmd.com slash reform poll and vote. It only takes a second. And we're posing the same question to you. What's your opinion of healthcare reform? Support, change, or repeal? You can also write in your comments, and we may use them on the air for our next show. And you can also vote who you like better, Matt or me. You can definitely do that, but it's a rhetorical question. And with that, we're going to leave it there for this scary Halloween edition on Second Opinion Live. Boo! Thanks to Miss Anna Doty for being with us here today. And thanks to everyone who spoke with us at the PrimeMed Midwest Conference. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. When you go to our website to vote, you can also listen to past episodes of our fabulous show at reachmd.com sol. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Tony. Collect cans of food. Have a happy Halloween. And thank you for listening. Take care, everyone.